Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. If I think back to my upbringing, I, I grew up in Michigan to really two really wonderful down-to-earth parents. My mom was a school teacher initially. Uh, dad was a dentist and did things like you know, giving away you know procedures or discounted things to families that couldn't afford it. So I always had these really nice, as I look back an adult, influences in my life and, and role models, so to speak. But something kind of changed in me when I got out of college. And I don't know what that switch was that flipped, but it wasn't a good switch. It was essentially, I got into the rat race, so to speak. And, and my first job was in IT sales. And I became very, very focused on accumulating as much wealth as humanly possible. And I'm not, as I've said on a number of shows, I'm not anti-capitalism. I'm not anti entrepreneurship, in fact, quite the opposite. But I think I wanted stuff for the purposes of having stuff, to have uh, a really expensive car for the purposes of saying, look what I can drive. And one day, and this was back in 2001, which was kind of an ordinary day for me, um, I got in the car and I was driving to go have dinner with the cousins, with, with one of my cousins. And I was kind of sitting at the base of a hill where uh, it was five o'clock and the sun was in my eyes and this silver BMW just came flying. I flat out didn't see it. I, I got the ticket. I'm sure I deserve to get the ticket. Um, I've rehashed that scene a million times in my mind since then. But essentially, as I'm in the middle of this left-hand turn, I see a car screaming at me. And what's really interesting, what we know about the brain, and, and this research goes back, literally there are accounts of this over hundreds of years, you know, Civil War, Revolutionary War notes from, from soldiers and such. People who are in uh, a near-death experience oftentimes experience what is essentially a slowing down of time, almost to nothing. Like if you think about the Matrix and Neo's kind of moving and these bullets are whizzing by him in slow motion, that's what I was experiencing. I could see, you know, as this car was just about to slam into me, um, I, I knew I was going to die. Like I was just so sure. And as you know, I can see my windshield shatter and there's little shards of glass floating everywhere. And I see that center console crushing into my side, my thoughts immediately, and I didn't have my life flash before my eyes, like people say that happens. But I was reflecting on what I've accomplished in my life. What was I proud of? And, and when my Parents, when my parents got that call, because I was single, you know, like that's who was going to get that call from the police that their son was dead was going to be my mom and dad. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, well, what are they going to be proud of that I've done in this world? And the answer was not much. Yeah, I got a degree. Big deal. Everybody, you know, anybody can go to college and get a degree. It's not that challenging, <laughs> but. I really just was, you know, thinking, God, I've, I've done nothing. And, and as I'm, I'm literally like my airbag deployed, I'm spinning back into oncoming traffic. And what stopped me was a telephone pole that my car ricocheted into. So as a result of that, I'm conscious for all this, but I did break my back. 
uh, suffered some severe internal injuries, did some significant damage to my neck. I mean, I, I was in pretty bad shape. And it wasn't like an Uncle Scrooge moment, like, you know, I was visited by the ghost of, you know, Richard Past and, you know, how can I change? But it was, it was about what kind of things can I do to make my life more meaningful in a way that's helpful for others. And that was really kind of the catalyst for me that started me on this long road that I'm on today, where ultimately I'm a clinical psychologist. I have the daily helping and I'm launching a nonprofit for kids here in the near future as well. But that, that was really the spark. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that story. And, you know, a few things that I find personally interesting is you talk about how at the time that you had this accident, that you wanted to own stuff in your life for the sake of owning that stuff. And I think there's a quote from the Fight Club, isn't there? It's something like, careful of the things you own for they will own you or something like that. But what I think about when I think about that story, and I feel like there's a great question in here for all of us to consider, which is what is our fundamental motivation that's driving what we do. That's a question that I am so passionate about because I feel like as individuals, if we can get connected to what is motivating us and become aware of that, we can then realize how certain motivations are actually creating or not creating different byproducts in our life that we may have been unaware of. So some people would suggest that what you're talking about is you were driven by, motivated by the need to feel significant, a sense of status, uniqueness, or importance based on the things that you owned. And I really think that if we can start to get conscious about what's motivating us, that can unlock. And it did for you because we're about to hear about your story of what happened since then. And I'd encourage every listener to think, what is truly motivating me? What is really driving the things that I do? I'm a fan of a psychologist from the 60s, a guy named Ian Marshall, who developed a model that he calls the scale of motivations. We're all familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And Tony Robbins really helped to popularize the concept that we're driven by certain emotional needs. But when you look at these different models, they're all saying the same thing, or the Barrett Values Index. Anybody can go take that assessment for free and you can see what kind of motivations are driving you. But they're all saying the same thing, which is, can you become aware of at the deepest level why you're doing what you're doing? In my personal belief, Dr. Richard, and I don't know, you know, it's not truth, it's not reality, it's just what I feel. So it's my truth, I guess, is that um, the more we can shift our motivations from being more self-focused to more others-focused, to be more service-oriented. And the Barrett Values Assessment is literally a way of measuring that. I feel like that can absolutely transform the scale and the size of the opportunities that the world puts in front of us. Because people know, whether it's conscious or unconscious, the opportunities and the people connected to those opportunities will resonate based on the actual motivations that are driving what we're doing. So I just wanted to stop and call attention to that because it's such a big deal. And so tell us, since that car accident, since you started asking what was important, how did that change what happened next in your life and how you decided to dedicate your life and your career? And tell us more about what that has led to. 
So the timing of that accident was really interesting for me because I had started an IT consulting company at that time. So we had already won our first bid with the government, which was pretty wild. So we were in the process of doing this. And, you know, one of the things that I had done was I had talked to everybody and anybody about this. I used to refer to it as the Schuster Empire. Like Again, I think back how arrogant and obnoxious of me. But I, I was going to build this massive IT company and do all these great things. And so I convalesced, but I went back to work. And it was kind John, it was kind of like everything was just a bit of a shade of gray for me. Like nothing was the same. Like I, I, I went to work and I did my thing. And I think I was lying to myself for a while because I just, I felt like if I walked away from it at the time, at least that's what I was telling myself, I was going to let so many people down. And I stuck with that. And I stayed in that role almost for two years and two years too long. Each day I got more miserable. Each day I knew I wasn't in alignment with, with who I'm supposed to be, but I was scared. And I think so many people, for them, fear is what stops them. Fear of the unknown. I mean, I knew I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, but I had no, no clue at all what I was going to do next. Mm-hmm. And eventually I just, you know, really was honest with myself and just said, I, I just, you know, I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. I need to do more. And I walked away from that company, just flat out walked away. And I went from, you know, working 60 to 80 to working zero in terms of hours and just had all of this time by myself. And and I just kind of was sitting there thinking about what was next, um, some regrets. I wasted this time. I, you know, worked in technology for these years. I'm not interested in technology. A, A lot of these, you know, should have, could have sort of scenarios in my mind. And then one day I found myself in a grocery store and I heard two women talking about their daughters and social media. This was back when MySpace was the thing, not, not Facebook. Have you ever heard of this MySpace? What is this? And then, and, and they're on, and they're posting these pictures. And, and I, I just kind of interjected. I don't usually do that. I don't usually butt into other people's conversations, but I just say, Hey, you know, excuse me. I couldn't help it over here. You know, I've got a bit of a background in technology and, and security and I could, you know, share some things with you. So one of them, you know, wanted me to come talk to their school. And so now all of a sudden I'm talking to some parents and I'm starting to do some speaking about internet safety. And that got me closer because now I'm helping others. And the time I spent in technology didn't seem like it was so wasted to me because I was actually using it in a way that's helpful. And then uh, at one of these talks I gave, there was a gentleman in the audience that was on the the local police's cybercrime unit. I don't know why that guy wasn't giving the speech, but uh, he wanted me to team up with him. And now all of a sudden I'm kind of on this circuit tour with the police doing these big talks. I mean, big talks, it was one audience that was well over a thousand people, which was really cool. And I'm helping people on a grander scale. And at one of these things, a school, I don't, can't remember if it was a counselor or a principal, somebody came up to me and asked me if I'd be willing to mentor. That there were a lot of, a lot of women that were signed up, but they didn't really have any male mentors and they had a need. And I said, sure. So they gave me uh, this young man who was at the time in the seventh grade. And we started you know, doing this thing together and mentoring is, uh, for a lot of people, it's like therapy, but not really. But it kind of gives you a taste of having a direct impact in somebody's life. And over time, uh, you know, the problems that this young man were having started to change. And, and I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say, oh, I'm the reason that, that everything changed for him. 
However, it was really cool to be a part of that process. And so I learned of a, a local social work program, a master's in social work program that was opening up. And I went down there and talked to them, applied to that program. And, and that was a very powerful experience. This was around the time of Hurricane Katrina. So I got to work directly with some of those families that you know, lost everything from New Orleans and then moved westward to Texas where I saw them. And then it just things just kind of started falling into place, John. Then, you know, having accomplished the master's, but wanting to do more, I sought out a doctorate in clinical psychology and, you know, was able to do my dissertation on the impact of social media on personality functioning. So there again, the technology wow. comes back. Everything was kind of full circle. And I love what I do day to day. And it, and it lets me help people directly, but I wanted to do this podcast as a way of, you know, whereas the direct clinical work is the micro, the podcast is more of the macro where hopefully I could have more of a societal impact, which is why I started that. Yeah. So I want to ask you about some of the things you just brought up. I also have a note here and forgive me if this feels out of order, but I want to hear from you about what you call the neuroscience of altruism. I want to hear from you about what is that? What can we learn from that? And how could we apply that in our everyday lives? Well, that's, that's really a central tenet of my show. And, and it's not something that I talk about episode by episode because the show is essentially me interviewing people about their expertise to help people. But one of my show's objectives is to get a million people in a single day to commit acts of kindness for others. And to pull it into the neuroscience that's important is that we are, particularly in the United States, a very we-focused society, right? Everything we see is, it's me, me, me. And we're in a really awesome time scientifically to where we can actually see what's going on in the brain in real time. And what the research has shown is that if somebody were to give you $1,000, that would be cool for you. But what's also really exciting is that in terms of hormones that get released in our brain, like oxytocin and dopamine, we get the same experience whether or not we're helping or giving. So why not give? So mm -hmm. I try and really implore people to spend some time every day. You know, I, I end every show with this. I tell people to go out there and do something nice for somebody else. And you know, it's interesting. I had a discussion with somebody on one of my episodes about altruism. Altruism does not mean you go, you know, hold the door for somebody or give somebody $20 thinking that karmically you're going to get paid back 200. That's not altruism. Altruism is truly giving, expecting nothing in return. And that's what I want to encourage people to do. Mm. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, tell us about this nonprofit that is in the process of being approved that launches when? In the next few months? That's the goal. So we are simply awaiting for the IRS to grant us 501c3 status. And my lawyer told me last week that I'm in that 90-day review. So if all the documents are in a row, then we're going to be collecting money soon, which is so exciting for me. This is a passion project for me. You know, I I talk about miracles. Certainly, I think my car accident was a miracle that I survived. I still don't know how I did. The other miracle in my life involved my firstborn son and was the inspiration for this nonprofit. When we were at 31 weeks, my wife collapses at work. So I'm, I'm on my residency. So I'm seeing patients doing my thing. And I get a call 
from my wife's place of work that she has collapsed. She can't move. And, you know, so of course we're fearing the worst, thinking it's the baby. We, we rush her to the hospital and, you know, they do all of the tests that one would expect them to do. And the doctor came on and he says, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is that the reason you've been experiencing this pain is because your kid's been kind of doing a little tap dance on your sciatic nerve and that's really painful. But the bad news, and we wouldn't have known this otherwise, is that your amniotic fluid, you've had a leak in your cervix, probably so insidious you would have never known. And your amniotic fluid levels are so low that if we can't raise them in the next 12 hours, we have to take the baby today because he would suffocate and be dead. Without question, he would die. Hmm. So, you know, my wife's a pediatric occupational therapy I, in my residency, I'm working a lot with kids because we were you know, connected to Joe DiMaggio Hospital and I'm seeing kids with severe developmental disabilities. So we're seeing the worst every day, like the worst case scenarios. And so, yeah. I, you know, what the literature shows is that a kid born at 31 weeks, not great, not great outcomes most mm-hmm. of the time. So we're freaking out. So they stick her with an IV full of fluids and 12 hours goes by and the levels go up just enough to give it some more time. Mm. And 12 hours becomes 24, becomes 36, becomes six weeks. And so she was on bed rest, my wife, for the rest of this pregnancy. And he cooked to 37 weeks, which is great. But because the fluid levels were high enough for him to live, but not enough for him to move, he spent the last six weeks with his wedge completely just kind of like cranked all the way to the left. So if you turn your head as far as it could go to where it's painful, that's where he sat under my wife's rib cage for the rest of that pregnancy. So when he had to be taken during emergency C-section, his head was pretty misshapen and he had so many problems, so many problems. And in a, what people don't realize that when a child develops, an infant develops, everything is connected. So the sensory input they get from crawling, things they hear in their environment in terms of what they see, what they hear, it all comes together. My son had no idea. When other kids were walking, my son didn't know he had a right side of his body. Hmm. He needed speech and PT and OT and a helmet that we couldn't afford, but we really overextended ourselves to get him the help that he needed. And what was really remarkable over time is that because of the people in our life, particularly at his school, that went so above and beyond to help him, he eventually caught up and exploded. You know, like when the OT would say, my son needs more sensory input, his teacher would text my wife pictures that day of them putting shaving cream on his feet, you know, which was really important. And so we were so touched by that. And as I was kind of moving through to jump into the future a little bit with this podcast, I had interviewed Bob Berg, who was at the time my first published author, big guest. And I was really optimistic. And I just, you know, said to my wife that night, God, I'd really like to, you know, when this takes off, cut a check back to his old school for 10 grand and earmark that money just for speech PT and OT. And then the little cartoon light bulb went out and I freaked out and ran downstairs and I went to GoDaddy and saw that everykidrocks.org was available and I bought it and emailed my lawyer. And so that, that was the inspiration. I, I have a perfectly wonderful, happy, healthy five-year-old boy. And, and even now, you know, like we go to birthday parties on weekends. You've got young kids, you know, you know, like I see him on the playground and he's climbing, you know, monkey bars or something. And I'm, I almost cry. Like I still, 
I'm so grateful and it's so amazing to me that he can do these things that you know a lot of people would just take for granted. So when we're able to take money, what we're going to be doing is helping kids just like my son, because there's a lot of foundations and charities out there for kids that have severe disabilities. There's really nobody playing in the space for those kids that just need a little push, those kids that just need a boost to reach their true potential. And that's where we're going to be. So schools will have the ability to apply, we'll vet them, and then the funds will be distributed directly to the schools so that they can go out into their community and bring in treating professionals to help these kids that just need a little time-limited push to get back on track and right their ship. Dr. Richard, that is uh, what an incredible story. And thank you for sharing that, you know, to hear how personal it is for you. And uh, I can relate as a parent. One of the things I invite everyone who's listening to think about, and this will be, you know, my next question for you, is I'd love any kind of final thoughts you have that can help all of us on the idea of how to continually keep figuring out what our mission is and aligning what we do with that. And I hope that when others hear your story, they are not only inspired, but they're inspired not just by the story itself, but by the idea that one of the things that you are exemplifying is you're constantly listening to what is the world telling you? What are the opportunities that the world is giving you to align what you're doing with what you really care about? And I love what you said earlier that you know in your career, you had stayed in a role maybe for too long. And I think all of us can relate to in our lives as entrepreneurs or otherwise, we all have decisions that we're facing. And many of us have decisions that we put off or we rationalize not making a decision. And that makes us feel good about it in the short term. But what none of us want is to look back and think, oh my gosh, should I have made a different decision? And so I love that your story embodies really listening to your passion, your mission, and being willing to follow that. And I encourage anyone who's listening to think about maybe where has fear held you back from making a critical decision to doing something that maybe more closely aligns, whether it's a little or a lot, with what you really care about, with what you really value. Because life is so precious. This whole ride is, is such a short ride. So Dr. Richard, any final thoughts on from your journey any lessons you've learned about just aligning everything you do with what matters most? You know, it's a great question, John. And I'm actually in the process of writing my first book, which is going to delve into this very specifically. One of the things that I think is so neat to do is to step back and talk about those things you're passionate about. Many people, if you're an accountant or, you know, in sales, and, and maybe you love helping others, you know, but what do we really enjoy? Like if you strip away the need for money and to pay the mortgage and tuition or whatever, whatever fiscal responsibilities one might have in your life, ask yourself, what is it that you really love to do? And as you're asking that, I mean, probably everybody who's read the Miracle Morning and in the Miracle Morning community is very committed to achieving goals and being very, very introspective. So, you know, find out what you love to do and identify what your values are. And values are different than strengths. Values are different than passions. It is who you are as a core person. I mean, my, my mission is value-driven. And for me, my mission is to be of service to others, even if it is no benefit to myself. So for me, every action that I take drills down from there. And that's really the first thing. Because if you can identify who you are 
and how you want to make an impact in this world. And then find activities which bring you passion. You will kind of stumble into, as I did, ways to tie those two things together and be able to provide abundance for your family and your loved ones. Wow. I love how clearly you're able to share that. And I also love, Dr. Richard, that for anyone here who's been a listener for a long time, you know, we have some folks listening to this podcast who they've heard me for the past year and they may or may not realize that I'm just standing in for my buddy Hal, who started this podcast. And for anybody in this community who knows Hal, a lot of what you just shared resonates with how he has shown up in the world for so many years. You know, I can't help but hear your mission and think that is so much a part of who Hal is and how he has grown his global community. And I have seen, because I've known him for a long time, and I'm just getting to know you, but I've seen for Hal going back 10 plus years, he's been living out his own mission so similar to yours, which for such a long time, he has so authentically been committed to, he calls it selflessly adding value every day. The saver model. Interesting because his lifesavers is part of his Miracle Morning framework. But I love that personal mission that you have, Dr. Richard. And one more time before we part ways here, where can people follow you, learn from you, and stay up to date with what you got going on? Best way to do that is to go to thedailyhelping.com, which is kind of the mothership for everything that we're doing. As the nonprofit launches, we will we will certainly post everything that's there. That's going to be everykidrocks.org. But like I said, can't take money yet. And then the podcast is available in all the usual places, iTunes, Google Play. We've got our app in the App Store. So that's kind of where everything connects to, I should say. Awesome. Dr. Richard, good to be with you, buddy. Take care. Likewise. You too. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast.